welcome back to Background Centuries. Background Centuries. What's the what Ethan we don't have we don't we don't have time for this. Okay. You know, why don't you just why don't you just dive right in? We're, this is yeah. going to be a little bit different today. Now, this is a little bit of a different episode. We thought we might we, we might want to shake it up for you. Um as you know, we are um we are an audience of culture, and that means that means several different things. You know, obviously we know a lot about different things, but that does not exclude the the more widely widely known um, bits of culture. Um, today we are going to be diving into a film. We are we um, are going to kind of throw aside our pre-established structure and rhythm, and we're gonna we're gonna spend this episode talking about a film that is very close to both of our hearts. Uh, it's, it's one of our favorites. Um, I remember the first time we watched it, we watched it. Um, I don't know, I don't know if you remember, but I was, I was still in high school at the time and it was, it was after the big football game, um, where we had that, that slumber party afterwards. We, we put in this flick and it started out kind of a joke. You know, we were like, oh, let's watch this. Let's watch this movie. I'd kind of heard about it on, on the internet. And, and then, um, it ended up changing our lives forever. Wouldn't you say? I would say so. Let me read you a a review of this oh, yeah. flick by mm-hmm. by Ray Bauman, uh, one of the one of the you know greatest movie reviewers. Uh, this is this is a quotation from Ray Bauman's review on this film. Three things. First thing, what the fuck. Second thing, <laughs> what the. Fuck. Third thing, what the actual fuck? <laughs> so as you might have guessed, probably by the, the title of the episode, um, the movie we're talking about today is the 1993 movie called Freaked! Exclamation point. Do we need a sting for Freaked? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, okay, I'll say Freaked, and then we'll have, uh, we'll have, uh, we'll have an audio sting. Freaked! Um, yeah, and so so we decided that uh, we were just going to spend some time and kind of go through this movie and have sort of a, a book club, but for movies. Um, and depending on how this goes, maybe we'll do it for other movies. We might do it for other movies, but there is kind of a, a prerequisite up top for, for all these movies that we, that we may or may not do, hypothetically. Um, you know, there, there's a lot of there's a lot of podcasts out there that that you know really dive into the goofs, and, and you know we'll we'll you know dissect a uh, well you know movies of varying quality. We, but we're on this show we're going to stick with movies uh, that have um, the quality that, that kind of matches the vibe of the rest of the show. Kind of a you know an introspective, very deep, very meaningful. Bits of art. I think that's what we're going to try to focus on. Only the very best. Now. Only the very best. Um, and so that's why it just had to be 1993's Freaked um, for for our first for our first for our way, for our far for, for for our first foray. You want to go again? Yeah, for our first Ferrari into this into this new new style episode. So so let's just jump into it. Um, I uh, we both recently watched this movie. Um, I watched it last night. And and when did you watch it? Uh, last night, just to kind of refresh my memory. Yeah, yeah, it, it's one of those. Uh, it's one of those flicks that you feel like you're always watching, you know. 
Like it feels like you never feels like you never stop watching it, you know? Like almost like you can't get it out of your head. Almost like once like, you start watching it, that's your that's that it's like a hell. It's like an uh, it's yeah, perpetual like hell. Almost every time in. you close your eyes, that's all you see, kind of. Yeah, absolutely. So this um this this flick is uh stars Alex Winter as the um as the main character. And um let's let's kind of go through this this flick beat by beat. Do you want to you want to introduce us to our to our our lead character? So the premise of the film is we're following this actor who has been hired by a, maybe an extra extra governmental agency you might call it yeah for yeah. the purpose of promoting uh promoting production of a uh, maybe a, a less than ethical toxin substance called Zygrot Zygrot 24 and when he takes the job he travels to the country it will be manufactured in only mm-hmm. to find that there are uh, uh pro- pro- protesting groups yeah who mm-hmm. who disagree with the ethics of producing Zygrot 24 Zygrot 24 in their country and in a an odd turn of events uh meet one of the protesters who they take a liking to and uh while on their way to I'm trying to remember why they're going there. Well, that's the thing, because uh with um transformative works of art like this, sometimes meanings get lost. And so it, Diversions it, it really are made. Not, it's really not part of the point of the story. Basically, they find themselves at uh, what looks like a carnival-style freak show. That's right. Yeah, they see signs advertising this, and it looks interesting, so they pull off mm-hmm. to the side to check it out. And, and mind you, while we're talking about this, this is a very uh, politically and environmentally charged movie. Um, uh, the the writers and directors and anybody on everybody on the cre- creative process um, was really it was really an, um, their endeavor to to say something about our about the current political um, landscape at the time. And, and they and, they sort of couch that that tension filled conversation in the development of the main character. Absolutely, which is, we, we kind of skipped over his name. His name is Ricky Coogan. That's right. The actor Ricky Coogan mm-hmm. is sort of an audience surrogate yeah. for sort of undergoing a, an ethical change in themselves yeah. to realize mm-hmm. that it is important to care about the environment and ethical production of of goods and other particularly other countries yeah mm-hmm. so it's a and, and, yeah in some way as a statement on outsourcing jobs to third world countries and polluting in the mean in the meanwhile those same countries that we're outsourcing to yeah yeah um and and you know there's a lot to um i i when i went through you know this obviously wasn't my first watch so I, I i was able to take some notes to kind of give us a framework um and so i want to i want to start out um 
uh, I, guess, I guess we could finish the plot real quick. The, the basically, they get they get roped into this this uh, sort of lovable cast of misfits, um, and they they each kind of take on a deformity uh, from this. They're, they're treated with this Zygrot twenty four substance, and they are turned into these you know titular freaks, and and they kind of run in with the the, the cast of, of freaks that that um, are a part of the show. Um, and then it's the it's their journey towards the towards the lesson towards the enlightenment at the end of the film um so that's the basic structure and and the and the form that the film takes is um at the beginning Brooke shields um is interviewing the actor Ricky Coogan post post the story and and it's we're getting sort of a recap from from Ricky um sort of a, a talk show style. So, but I, I want to start with the opening, uh, I, I wrote down the opening nightmare of an intro. Yes. I don't know if you, if you, um, if you remember that, uh, that fever dream and if, and if you had any, uh, any, any thoughts on it, because my thoughts, uh, watching it again this time is still terrifying. Um, and it seems like whoever made that specific intro did it for the express purpose of torturing whoever watches it. I believe so. It's sort of a, it's sort of a prelude to the later Edgar Wright, yeah, vis-a-vis Tarantino uh, musical interlude to their to their film expression. It, it's sort mm-hmm. of very an- stark. Yes, it sort of anticipates that later convention in film while also inviting the audience into a hellscape where you do want to instantly become blind and maybe yeah. maybe deaf yeah and 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 it starts starts the mood and it's very bold very bold there's a lot there uh, a lot of my notes include the include the adjective bold um because this opening nightmare it kind of tells you very bluntly don't watch this movie turn it off but if you stick through it you'll realize that this is actually a very transformative piece of art um and while we're on the topic of the of the opening i do just want to briefly touch on my favorite part of the song and it's when the singer just um it just says freaked that doesn't really sing it just says freaked 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 over and over and over again in the sort of breakdown of the song i thought that was um very good have you counted at any point while watching how many freaks how many times they say freaked no that that's gonna be on my on my 11th watching i think i'm gonna i'm gonna endeavor that um a lot of people are doing that they're they're doing the the freaked challenge um i just i just don't want to gamify art too much um, I want to be careful about that. I want to make sure I've uh, absorbed as much of the original intent as possible before I start um, d- d- taking a novel, a, a, you know, a novel attitude with it. Um, and I don't know if you if you noticed this, but um, d- during the opening credits, uh, Mal- uh, Malcolm Campbell, the editor, he actually lost a bet. Um, there, there was a group of editors, and they none of them wanted to have their names attached to this film. And so, uh, he was actually, did I say loss of it? No, he was blackmailed. Um, the, the, um, the director and writers had kidnapped his family and said, the only way we'll release your children and your wife is if you take the credit for being the editor of this movie. 
I mean, which I think is an interesting bit of film history. That's right. That's right. And, you know, those of you who are wondering, you know, did that lead to any sort of legal repercussions? Uh, no. No, none whatsoever. No, not at all. It's funny because the law turns a blind eye to this entire movie. Yeah, it was actually, a, it came out the year before we had any sort of legislation on blackmailing. Yeah. Um, the the company that, that uh, Ricky Coogan is approached by is called uh, EES, which is the Everything Except Shoes Company. Um, and they are the, the sort of face of this corporate... Uh, corporate uh, a body, this corporate faceless um, organization, um, and and then they were sent to Santa Flan, which is the um, the patron saint of cream and desserts, as as stated in the movie. And that is that is a fact. When I I remember when we watched it the second time, which was approximately an hour and a half after we started it the first time, we pretty much just went two times in a row. Um, I remember the second time we were like, that can't be real. So we looked it up and it turns out, yeah, that is, that is a place in South America, uh, Santa Flan. Um, and the, and the patron saint of creamy desserts is a very important cornerstone of, of their culture. I want you to talk about the use of the, the actors in the film and the characters within the film, uh, the way that they laugh at their own jokes in the movie. I want you to talk about the technique of having, um, having the, char- the, the, the characters in the movie say these absolutely atrocious jokes and then within the fiction them laughing at their own their own mistakes, their own um, acts against God. I was wondering if you could uh, sort of peek behind the curtain with us and tell us why, what, what technique that is. Well, it's sort of a, an acknowledgement of the fact that it's very problematic what they're saying. And so in order to not completely alienate audiences, they need to be self-aware of mm-hmm. the the problematic nature of their comedy. And so yeah. making reference to female body parts or, you know, mm-hmm. lightly refer, referring to maybe unsolicited intercourse as yeah. part of the character's... It- uh, lack of charm yeah and i am gonna i'm gonna clarify something for the audience when when ethan said comedy he was he did probably about i'm probably gonna have to cut it down but you did about three minutes of air quotes i'm probably gonna have to cut most of that out um but just just for clarification um there there was um there was a lot of uh, air quotes in that um i do want to bring uh i do want to bring something up uh before we move on um, there, there's a scene in an airplane. There's a sequence, I should say, in an airplane, um, and a lot of things happen in this in this particular set piece. But um, I want you had texted me while you were rewatching it last night, and you had said that you wanted to talk about the old lady on the airplane toilet. That's right. Thanks for reminding me. Yeah, you had said that you had said that you had uh, a bit of uh, film trivia about that that particular detail. So. The woman in the bathroom on the airplane, it's a funny story how she got that part. She she didn't audition intentionally, but rather it was... So she's actually related to, to the director of the film. And it was an ongoing... Who prefers to remain nameless. Yeah, they wouldn't... They, wouldn't, they were able to avoid that, that blackmailing list. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, it was an ongoing joke in their family that she never locked the bathroom when she would go in. Mm-hmm. And it started as a nuisance in the beginning of like, good grief, can't you please just knock? God, mm-hmm. please knock. Uh, to then intentionally, you know, like sort of the, oh, whoops, <laughs> you know, like the shrug mm-hmm. and the wink. Yeah. Um, even though we, they all knew that, that she was, it was occupied. Um, yeah. when they, when it came time to, to, for filming, uh, they were trying to, they were trying to come up with gags for the airplane scene and, mm-hmm. um, the, the whole, like the whole hand dick thing wasn't really landing. And so they're like, well, maybe we should, mm-hmm. you know, so they were kind of spitballing some things and the director was like, well, you know, there is this family joke that's sort of ongoing. So he called, he called her up and said like, Hey, would you mind coming down to the, to the studio? And she didn't even actually realize that she was going to be in the film. Mm-hmm. He just said, hey, I need you to test this new bathroom because uh, the plumber just worked on it and we're not sure if it works yet. And she said, sure. I just had a whole pizza to myself and I have one on deck. So she did. <laughs> she did. Because <laughs> for those of you who don't know, in the movie, Ricky Coogan and his friend Ernie, I guess, um, <laughs> they go to hide in an airplane bathroom. Um, and when they open it up, uh, they, they're hiding from, from what I'd say, probably an eight year old. Um, when they go to open it up, uh, there's already an old woman in the bathroom using the toilet, sitting on the toilet. And then they proceed to continue to hide in that bathroom. Yeah. While she's still sitting on the toilet. While she's still on the toilet with her pants down. Yeah. So when it came time for filming, he had timed it just right that when she went in, they would start filming, uh, mm-hmm. And it was a perfect setup, and perfect setup, perfect joke. Mm-hmm. I, I think that that um, you would watch that movie and you'd be like, "Well, you just used the best joke right at the top of the movie within the first ten minutes. What are you gonna, you know, the rest of the movie is gonna suck." But you know, the jokes kind of just keep raising the bar from this point on. You know, they really call their shot, um, and they do a really, 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 really great job. Um, I I do want to talk about the. Because obviously this this movie dramatically undercuts its message with with comedy um, as sort of a subversion of expectation. Um, within the first ten minutes of this movie, they um, the, the our two lead characters cheer at the sight of uh, like I said, what seems to be an eight year old being sucked out of an airplane, um, presumably to his death, and also along with him, an old man in a wheelchair also falls out of the same open airplane door. Um, and then they, they cheer. They say, yes, you know, that's um, that's exactly what they want it to happen. <laughs> now, another a- another I had written down bold, bold to, to have our lead characters act like that in the first 10 minutes of the movie. And it it, it serves it serves the function of the film well in that you begin by disliking these characters greatly so that you can see again if we're if we're sticking with the analogy that the main character is a an audience surrogate you begin to disdain the place that they were in before they underwent their transformation mhm yeah and and the film is saying is saying you who are watching this you are a bad person if you're watching this movie you're a bad person <laughs> Right. Um, which is it's a very powerful powerful stance um and then kind of to belabor the point home uh after um 
they they use some editing tricks, which is you know, Malcolm Campbell is killing it. Um, they use some editing tricks to make you think that um, Ricky Coogan and his friend are flying in on this particular airplane, airplane, um, because their lines are sort of voiceovered as this airplane is landing. It's a familiar trope, um, and then as this airplane lands, it blows up tragically. There, you know this huge loss of life it's a tragedy um and then it is revealed that um ricky and his friend were not on that plane yeah uh, just they were just talking they were just talking from the side and and ricky says um sorry i wrote it down here um he says um in in this response to a public plane plane crash he said sure glad that wasn't our plane That's, our airplane yeah he said mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. um uh, no, no tears, no emotion in his voice. Um, absolutely, um, almost, almost joyous. Yeah, and we have to remember that this is pre nine eleven. Yeah, this is pre nine eleven, and this is also the exact moment where his character starts to change, and 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 it's it's incremental, but you can see he turned from this complete, you know, jerk to now he's like understanding that yeah it would have sucked if he was on that plane mm-hmm. and he's starting to pull himself out of himself a little bit and starting to learn empathy in that moment and um I, another thing that you had texted me uh last night as you were watching it um is um a very popular film trope of the time it's kind of been outmoded now but um the full the scene with the full body cast life life flirting where um he sees um he sees the 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 quote unquote attractive woman um uh who is protesting Ricky Coogan himself and Ricky Coogan decides to put on a full body cast complete with blood stains and partake in this lie flirt where yes. he pretends to be somebody named Josh now i want you to speak on the the sort of uh the history the film history about um, w- what the filmmakers are saying with that particular particular trope that we're that we see all the time in movies of the time of these people pretending that they are in a full body cast to ultimately lay with whatever um, whatever female character is on screen at the time. Yes, that film convention began in the mid nineteen thirties. Mm-hmm. With a very similar uh, comedic punchline that I think was most mastered by the the duo Abbott and Costello in their films, and mm-hmm. continued to gain traction uh, throughout the decades, and 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 really took up residence in the the late '80s and early '90s filmmaking scene, and then using this as a platform for making a character statement about Ricky yeah. that he he is in a sense this parasite uh trying to embed himself into into other people's other people's business in in a sense mm-hmm. and so he, yeah in that moment he becomes a, a, an analogy for the bigger picture of the of the film uh that you could almost in a sense picture the efforts of the EES 
as similarly parasitic to mm-hmm. the the very problematic actions of Ricky putting on a full body cast to to get to third base essentially with this protester. Mm-hmm. Well, that that kind of brings to it because what I um, when I watch this this sequence, I I, I I'm a little confused um, just because. You know, when this this trope was established, it was a time where movies weren't really looked into as much as they are now. You know, obviously now we would think, oh, well, what was... Basically, my question is, what was Ricky's plan with the bandages? Because if it was made in the 1930s, you wouldn't need a logical explanation. But since this movie... This isn't a dumb movie. This is a very smart, in- intelligent movie. What was his plan with the bandages? Was he supposed was was he intending to keep up this lie? Indefinitely. Indefinitely. I mean, it seems like it when they get in the car. It, he only takes off the bandages because he can't contain in himself the insult that his actual person is receiving from his mm-hmm. love interest. Would you, do you want to give the insult, or or do you do you remember it? It's burned into my memory. What? Much like almost every flame, every frame of this movie. The, the deliverance will probably be better on, on, in your mouth. Why don't you go ahead and take it away? Well, well, the, the female character, Julie, says, um, he's no Christian Slater. And that kind of sends our, our, our character, Coog, Ricky Coog, um, into a tailspin. And he takes off his bandages and, and said, I could act circles around Christian Slater which is true because the even even you know in a meta sense Alex Winter's chops in this flick are absolutely breathtaking and it very well deserving of the many Oscars that he did he did get yeah so cuz he actually got, got got the Oscar for best leading leading lead actor and also best antagonist yeah, that was a category that I think they only discontinued within the last 10 years. Within the last 10 years, yeah. But to attend to the the initial question, what was his plan, my theory is that he was going to continue with the ruse indefinitely and eventually just cut out a little pee-pee hole for his wiener in order to engage in the intercourse that we all assume that he was heading toward with the mm-hmm. bandages still on. Yeah, and for those of you who may be a little bit more, you know, um, squeamish about this sort of topic, just know that this is the purpose of the film. They want to bring you to that uncomfortable place. They want Um, you to feel uncomfortable thinking about wieners. They want you to hate every moment that you're watching this movie. So um, I I had written down, this is sort of just a reference to to the the scene that I was watching, but I had written down CGI landscapes. (laughs) (laughs) Because our our cast of now three characters, um, Julie, I think his name is, I don't know what the best friend's name is. I've seen it ten times. I, I think it's Ernie. You know what's funny is they never say it. (laughs) <laughs> it's funny because they say it, but they always do a different name. So I'm just gonna say I'm just gonna say it's it's Ricky Coogan's best friend, um, and and Ricky Coogan. They are on this Jurassic Park style jeep. Yeah. As they're exploring these absolute dirt roads, and the the back the CGI used for the background, you might not know that it's CGI because it's so good. 
But it is actually all all fake, even the car. Did you know that, Ethan? Yeah, there's some very underground footage of them filming that scene, and they're actually all just sitting in folding chairs. They're sitting in folding chairs, and they're not even... Um, they're using uh, popsicle sticks with um, ping pong balls on the end of them as sort of the standees for their heads for motion capture. Mm-hmm. So, so they didn't necessarily even really need to be sitting down there themselves, but for the craft, for the emotion behind the scene, they needed it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't know if you're aware of, of the controversy around that scene in particular, and that was actually the reason why the filmographer, the first one, was fired, mm-hmm. because the filmographer told them that it would make it easier for him in removing their lower halves from the shot for the CGI Jeep. He said it would be easy for him, easier for him in post if they weren't wearing pants. And so for that whole scene, none of them were wearing pants, which made them feel very uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. And it was completely unnecessary. They didn't need to do that. Yeah, stories came out later that it was it turned out to be a, a real crock. And nobody knows if it was a prank or some sort of... Um, some sort of inappropriate assault, but yeah, L- like like I said, this was in the wild west of filmmaking. There was not really a lot of regulations, um, and there was not a lot of laws at this point in 1993. Um, I I have done. Uh, I took the liberty of of um, whenever a, a, a particularly inspiring line was said in the flick i had written down a couple of them and so throughout the this episode um i do want to s- sort of highlight some of these great moments in writing um and we come up upon to upon our first one there's been a lot of great lines but you know I, I i tried to pick just just the cream of the crop um and this is spoken of course by uh by ricky coogan's friend um and it's lighten up coog could be a goof That's a that's the joke. Yeah, that's the, that's the, that's joke the setup of, and the punchline. So I mean, there's not really any reason to spend more time on that good line. Um, and I also I also wrote down here, and this is actually um in the the Wikipedia article that I had written um for for this movie, um, and it, and it is uh everyone had at least one nightmare in Freakland as a young child and this is actually a true fact um if you watch the movie i don't know if you've seen it if you've seen it you should probably pause this and go watch it before we get into too too much of a spoilery area but um when they enter freakland everybody who's watching it will realize that the reason why freakland is so familiar is that um without fail every single child has at one point had a nightmare that takes place within freakland it's true. What was yours like? Well, mine was particularly focused on the entrance. Mm-hmm. And I've spoken to specialists on this because it was actually a nightmare that I had every night for about 10 years. Yeah, it went into your into your adulthood for sure. And they believe that it was a kind of uh, Freudian trauma related to being birthed and so the Mm -hmm. entrance into the gate was a reminder of coming into the world naked and afraid yeah yeah and and disoriented and confused and slimy Um, and slimy and you didn't ask for this 
Just like watching this movie, you didn't ask for this. Um, I also do want to just bring up one more thing, what was which yours? is Randy. Oh, oh, mine. Uh, mine was it, it kind of uh, focused more on on the uh, what what Randy Quaid, who he well, he's almost to be introduced. Um, his uh, shed, what he calls his shed. Um, that that's where a lot of my nightmare took place, and um, it wasn't until I was able to through um, thousands and thousands of dollars of therapy. Um, within my dreams escape the shed mm. and and thus transcend my fears of growing up um th- that I could that I could really break free from these nightmares um but I, I do want to bring bring up one bring up one thing and that is uh Randy Quaid's big rotating head yeah yeah a- and a very essential plot uh plot device it's a it's a robotic head and it's just Randy Quaid's head. You want to talk about those eyeballs? That's a that, okay. This is going to be a spoiler for the rest. But you think like, oh, that's just part of the, the those eyeballs, are just part of the rotating head. Nope, they are Rastafarian. They are Rastafarian. Hold on, I I, I wrote it down. I I have to I have to turn the page on my um uh my. I, I'm using my mom's clipboard that she uses for work. I just flipped some of the pages back to it's the so blank great ones. That she's so I can letting take you borrow that. I haven't asked her, um, but I'm gonna just go. Uh, oh yes, um, they're they're referred to as giant Rasta eyeballs with machine guns. Yes. Um, so that's the scientific term. Also, another line spoken in this flick is um, "Children of Hell." <laughs> Which um, the the true fan, fans of this this um, this property will know that that's actually the title of the novel that this movie is based on, Children of Hell, and it is also the name uh, that the creative team sort of gave gave themselves as they were creating the 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 art direction of this movie mm-hmm. and the the script. They called themselves the Children of Hell, bringing on the Dark Lords horrible deeds mm-hmm. it's actually that book was a spiritual successor to tolkien's children of hern yeah mm-hmm. yeah it, it, the influences of children of hell are are very um very seen very seen uh and the reason why they had to change it for modern audiences for for the for the uh theatrical release was because children of hell was so abrasive as a title and they wanted to to lure in the kids to make the kids be scarred by watching this movie too because they didn't they didn't want the the trauma to just be localized on a certain age demographic they wanted to spread it out throughout an entire generation of human actual human beings um uh do do you um is it is it okay if i talk about um randy quaid for a second yes please uh, when Randy Quaid's introduced, he's the leader of this freak show. Um, he's the he's sort of the the main villain um, that we're introduced to, um, and uh, I'm just going to to describe him in the same way that that Ricky Coogan does, the old Coogster. Um, he says, uh, you, uh, "You look like a, a regular old dumb shit redneck," and. I mean that might as well be his Wikipedia entry as a character. Yeah, you don't need much else than that. You don't need you don't need much more than that. Um 
uh, and this is this is at the point where I had started to to sort of get some more of the subtext that the film was was trying to tell me um, because I had written down why are they at Freakland? Because at this point in the movie, you're thinking why are, but why are they even here? That's right. What part? What part of the plot instigated them being here? And you want to know what the answer is? So is there anything uh, about the movie that you want to talk about? <laughs> or should we just keep going? I mean, we're kind of on a roll, yeah? I, I feel like we're on a roll. How about um, Cowboy? What's up with Cowboy? Oh, Cowboy. Oh. Okay, so are we going to start going through our, ca- our, our, our lovable cast of, out- of Outsiders? I mean, it, would, it seems only appropriate. Okay, well, we are almost, yeah, let's see. We're almost, we're almost to them being introduced. So I'm just going to get through my, my few notes. Um, and, then we'll, and then we'll get into our, our, um, our roll call for our, for our freaks. Um, I do want to talk about um, another, another thing. Malcolm Campbell, his editing is ingenious because we have a very famous trope of the the evil laughter transition. Um, and so we get a little bit of that of Randy Quaid's character, evil laughing from the, from the scene that we're about to transition into. And then we transition into that scene and it is him laughing at the family circus. Yes. I mean, that's just funny. Straight up and down, that's funny. Yeah, it's it's on par with some of the great cross cutting that we see from from some of the greats like like a Spielberg or a Scorsese, a Michael Bay. Um, less explosions, but it's the same idea. Le- yeah, it's it's like a Michael Bay on a budget, which was actually the name of my um, <laughs> my self help book that I'm currently writing. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, also, the bit of him, because he had, um, uh, Randy Quaid, sorry. Randy Quaid has, uh, what is it, Ziggurat, Ziggurat 24, um, and, and Randy Quaid says, you're not supposed to have that, um, which is true. The audience is on Ricky's side for the first time. For the, this is a very important moment. It's true. And then Randy Quaid snaps back right out of the gate saying, oh, then I guess I'm not supposed to have these either, and then holds out two towels that have been embroidered with Ramada on them, kind of saying that he had stolen these towels from the Ramada hotel, which he's also not supposed to have those, and that sets up the gravity of this villain, that this villain is not... Does not care about the rules. There are no depths that this villain will not go to, to satisfy and to satiate their mm-hmm. their 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 dark needs. Mm-hmm. And um, I do want to um, the the uh, Ricky Coogan and and his two two friends, um, Julie and the other one, they get captured and they're going to be turned into freaks. And now um, the sort of uh, hyper masculine woman objectifying best friend character gets merged with this feminist woman who's trying her best to stand for something 
in this post 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 modern world um and um you had you had texted me and you had said um the merging sequence of them the the sort of claymation style merging sequence uh was an inspiration for do you want to say what it was an inspiration for what what great bit of uh uh upcoming film history it inspired it was the inspiration for what is now the iconic Wallace and Gromit films. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that same claymation style, the same social commentary, the same deep dive into relational tension, um, particularly social dynamics between the genders, all, all present within the Wallace and Gromit series, yeah. really got its start from this one scene which has so much subtext that the Wallace so and Gromit films that they, they kind of expanded on. Yeah, and, and when we say it was inspired inspired these Wallace and Gromit films, it didn't necessarily... I mean, the use of claymation was part of that, but it was mostly, as Ethan said, the, the subtextual um, ramifications of what was going on that really inspired it. It wasn't necessarily the actual visual stylings that was the inspiration. It was the, it was the emotional, the, the dramatic implications um uh and also this is just a little bit of trivia the laughing man who we're introduced to as sort of this um uh this sort of aloof puppet master evil evil person that we that we that we meet on the phone the laughing man um was actual actually meryl streep's first film role did you know that yeah i only learned that recently i think maybe uh in the lap maybe there are fourth or fifth watch through yeah and it's because she's unaccredited thank god she she's very happy about that yeah her film career could have gone a very different direction if she had been credited uh, it would have been a uh, i think this is just my opinion a very early a very early rise for that actor. A jump the shark moment. Yeah, when at that point we hadn't seen those kind of acting acting chops from her mm-hmm. to see her come out with this incredible vocal performance mm-hmm. might have been jarring for audiences at that point following her career. And it would have it would have cast such a big shadow on her future roles uh and and kind of made it impossible for for her to ri- rise to the Rise to the expectation that she had set. Yeah, we would have always um, been comparing it to that role and thinking it's never going to be at that level again. Yeah, yeah. Um, and and as everybody who who knows this film, it it is, it is. Um, I think just under just has just under seventy, um, just under seventy Oscars for this entire movie. Uh, I can't. Maybe I'll pull up the exact number at some point during this this um, episode. But yeah, um, I bring that up because Bob Fila um, makes an appearance as himself twice in this movie, and just on the screen for not even a minute, and bam, won an Oscar. And that's just a testament to the writing. Yeah, I know that. I think officially on record right now the. The the record holder for Oscars is Titanic, I believe. That that's on on paper. That's the official. So, and, and that's only with I think fourteen, but fourteen Oscars. 
the reason that uh, Freak does not not listed, not recognized as the record holder is because contextually and historically when it came out, it was not the kind of film that the Academy felt comfortable pushing as this, uh, like the definitive statement in art at that time, because they didn't believe that audiences were ready for that kind of political and social statement. So to this mm-hmm. day, and many, many petitions have gone to the Academy to now retroactively recognize Freaked as the record holder in Oscars. Yeah. With, I just, I just pulled it up, uh, 69 Oscars exactly. Okay. Okay. Yes. That's, that's what I thought, but I couldn't. I couldn't remember exactly. Yeah. I, I wanted to be sure. Um, I also, while while I'm on the internet here, um, I do want to say that probably the reason why um, some of the Oscars are contentious is because um, the Bob Vila character was actually played by uh, Nicholas Kahn. He was a Bob Vila Bob Vila lookalike, and so that caused some controversy. Um, and also, Randy Kay's character is <laughs> uh, Elijah C. Scuggs. Which is they they used a, a very popular um, uh, writing writing tool um, that if you have a, a evil character that you want people to think is an evil character, give them the name Scuggs. But I think from this we can talk about uh, the we can get into the cast of characters. Yeah, let's do it. Our freaks, our freaks. So we have Worm, which is just a worm man, and then we have Nosy, as, as the title suggests. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we have Nosy, which is just a, a guy with a where his entire head is just a big, big old nose. And then this is your uh, this is your personal favorite, I think. Cowboy. Do you want you want to talk about Cowboy for a second? He's a cowboy. For a second. He's a cow. Boy. He's a cowboy. He's like if a if a cow and a boy were both one, that's what he is. A cowboy. And now, do you want to you want to um, shed some light on Mr. T's character? Mr. T. The prolific Mr. T mm-hmm. uh, plays the bearded lady. Now, our introduction to his backstory is an interesting precursor to uh, contemporary dialogues on gender identity, um, coming from the unexpected voice of the villain. You would be better without a dick. <laughs> But he does get to keep the beard. He does get to keep the beard, which is, you know. Um, and then we have we have Ortiz, the dog boy. <laughs> <laughs> and Ortiz is actually um, is played by an unaccredited Keanu Reeves. And a fun fact about um, Keanu Reeves in this is Keanu Reeves, the reason why he was unaccredited was because Keanu Reeves uh, was not acting in this movie. Um <laughs> He, uh, he thought he was he thought he was the dog boy in real life IRL. So he didn't get a paycheck. He didn't get anything um, because he did not realize that he was in a movie. Still does not know that uh, him and his friend Alex Winter were in this movie together. Don't tell him, please, please don't tell him. Also, we have uh, the Frogman, and the Frogman uh, just seems to be a, a guy in a scuba suit who speaks French. Not necessarily a, a mutant by by today's standards, but and it is a fun little, uh, in a sense, a breaking from the formula that they've created for themselves, in in a very 
ironic, a very ironic title for a character that doesn't match the title. When up until that point, you, we have Cowboy, who is a cowboy. Nosy. He's a boy cow. Who's a big nose. Worm, who's just a worm. Just a worm of a person. And when we come to Frog Boy, it's sort of a little wink and a I gotcha because he's not in any way, I cannot stress this enough, has nothing to do with a frog. <laughs> nothing at all. Nothing at all. Uh, moving on, we have Sockhead, which is just... <laughs> A guy with a sock puppet for a head who we find out there's a hand under there and people are upset about it. Yeah, it's pretty controversial. Um, and then this next one, usually, I mean, all, all the other um, the other freaks have a joke attached to them, except for this one. This one uh, is uh, a very, very heartbreaking and dramatic story, um, and that is uh, The Eternal Flame. Uh, this one... Uh, it's actually, it's hard to talk about because, you know, a movie riddled with jokes and goofs, it's it's hard to, to really talk about the real stuff. But um, the Eternal Flame is um, is a man who um, is constantly, and when I say constantly, I mean always. I mean, there's not even a breath of relief in this man's life. There's no end. Always, always farting out fire. Do you want to talk a little bit about the sound design for the Eternal Flame? Yeah, um, actually, the the Foley artists uh, put in double time for this one to get um, the particular sound that they wanted that has the the spice uh, that the flame would would imply, but also the um, the uh, very uh, applicable sound of a fart. The um, correct juice levels. The correct juice levels, correct. And basically what they, what they did was is they cooked, um, they had Gordon Ramsay comes in, which this was before Gordon Ramsay's, uh, you know, rise to fame, and he came and cooked um, 12 burger patties um, to the exact temperature that is rare. The exact, the exact correct um, uh, measurable temperature for rare. And then what they did was is they had Gordon Ramsay throw these patties in the air and land on the tile flooring of the kitchen and they used that sound layered over each other um and sped up as the sound of the constant fart <laughs> mm-hmm. uh-huh. and then we get to rosie the pinhead which is just a bald girl who can't speak and there's really no explanation for why she doesn't use words yeah there's not really a um not really really anything more to talk about um. Yeah, uh, you have uh, the nun, who is not one of the freaks, but she does make an appearance in the crowd of the freak show, and I think is very important. Um. Yeah, that I, I I'm I'm looking I'm looking for uh more. I think that might do. You, I think I might be. I think that might be all of the um, the freaks. Um, and then, of course, we have uh, Ricky Coogan, who gets turned into a disgusting, half-normal, half-very-not-normal freak. Um, and he's called Beast Boy. And then we have uh, Ernie and Julie's um, melded character, which is just them merged together as sort of a like a really, f- really f- like funny joke. 
Uh, another one of these Oscar Oscar worthy lines. Um, just highlighting the writing here for a second is Mr. T's line when he says, "Hey, this is me. I am woman, and I like me." Hmm. Hmm. And the yeah. the leaps and bounds for the LGBTQ community, f- just from this line, um, the progress that this spurred on was absolutely, absolutely astonishing. Um, also, apparently, telepathic connections are a thing that happens during the freaked process, which is um, explored a little bit later. Um, uh and and oh, this is this is at the point of the film where Ricky Coogan finds out that his telepathic soulmate is the eight-year-old child that he wished uh, died in a plane crash, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. who inexplicably lands face first from falling thousands of feet in the air, uh, perfectly unharmed, and says, "I survived," <laughs> as if as if praying. That death would set him free from this movie. But he says, I survived. And then he gets hit in the head from a falling book. Yeah, whose book? Doesn't matter. Probably someone's. Um, so yeah, we, we find out that his soulmate is an eight-year-old, which is problematic. Um, and th- this is this is something that I... This is a film technique that I, that I think that you could um, expound on. It's, it's, a, um, it's a plot device... Um, it's, uh, uh, I wrote down this movie tends to make, uh, tend to turn plot moments into montages to favor the jokes. They kind of, um, because this is when they kind of, uh, skip a lot of what, what, um, you know, modern viewers would call story and condense the story into, um, a montage of just things happening so we can get back to the jokes. Do you want to talk about that, um, particular, um, device yeah so they they really wanted to subvert like you mentioned earlier subvert our expectations of how the film was going to treat its subject matter and for many films at the time that were you know sort of expounding on the neo-noir convention of filming where to to handle moody and intense themes the film had to be in turn moody and and intense and intense yeah this film instead subverts our expectations by condensing by uh bringing the themes of the film uh by way of this vehicle that is montages and jokes that for the time were commonly associated with very shallow films mm-hmm. and yeah. so they wanted Which this is this film is not in any way shape or form is not shallow and so these jokes uh the fart humor the sexist remarks mm-hmm. the uh, problematic themes of eight-year-old soulmates were all a way to mask the more intense underlying themes to make it more palatable and almost to, f- to trick you into thinking this is going to be something else and to bait you into interacting with more complex, complex themes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, um, we're just moving right along here. Um, uh, the next bit is we get to see little clips of, of the, the, 
the cast's acts that they do for the freak show. Um, and they're all interesting and very compelling, and I don't want to spoil them all here, but I do want to bring up the fact that Nosy's act, which is him, which is just the guy who has a no- big nose for a head, Nosy's act is him uh, dressed up as a gorilla dancing, and he covers up his only sort of physical deformity, something that would call him a freak. Um, I think that's just, like, not a good plan. If you're going to be hosting a freak show, you should probably not cover it up, you know? Yeah, he he is just a gorilla suit. He's a, a nose man in a gorilla suit. Mm-hmm. Um, and also, uh, while we're talking about acts, uh, Ricky Coogan gets a pep talk by Worm, who is the Worm Man, for, th- for those of you who might have forgotten. Um, he gets a pep talk, um, and then he decides to go out and and act. And it turns out that being a slobbering monster makes uh, Ricky Coogan a, good, a really good actor, because he recites um, Shakespeare like a champ and leaves the audience in tears. And did you know that uh, all, Ricky, all of uh, Alex Winter's lines in this are ADR'd? Because he could not speak with the, um, all the physical prosthetics? Yeah, it's worth noting that in any given second of the film, he always has at least a gallon of drool dripping down his shirt. Yeah, and that's real. 100% um, He kind of went Daniel Day-Lewis style with the, his immersion into the role. Yeah, because he actually could not close his gob. For the entire no, filming, couldn't keep that gob shut. Um, I do want to talk about the I like Ike guy for a second. <laughs> we see him uh, three times. We see him once at the um, protest earlier on in the film. And then we see him once in the crowd, and he's still holding his I like Ike sign. The crowd of the at the freak show, and then we see him uh, another time at the at the freak show. Once things have kind of erupted into a very very violent. Uh, kerfuffle, and he has his I like Ike sign uh, punctured through his abdomen. Just completely through his body. <laughs> and he's in the exact same pose with the exact same facial expressions as we, uh, when we see him the other times, and that's very funny. Um, and I do want to bring up one one thing, Ethan, and that is 13 Milkmen is silly. It's, it's too much. 13 Milkmen is too silly. <laughs> um, uh, then we get to the giant Rasta eyeballs with machine guns. <laughs> Uh, and then, you know, they hatch their plan to escape. Uh, and you know, I don't want to spoil it because it's very Ocean's Eleven. Um, but uh, um, I do want to... <laughs> uh, so they go through their um, their plan to get all the whatever bullshit. Um, and then it uh, turns out that they go through the whole thing and they have this container of goo that's going to help them, and Ricky Coogan uh, isn't able to get it, and so he leaves it in the lab. And so when he gets out of the hole that the worm dug uh, for them to get into the lab so they could get this MacGuffin or whatever the fuck, um, uh, and he he comes back to the group and he says, I couldn't, I left the goo in the lab, and they all go, oh, boo, and they start throwing vegetables and lettuce that I guess they just had on hand in case he left it behind in case they're you're prepared but then he says <laughs> wait let's talk about the fiction yeah. beforehand <laughs> saying hey so here's the deal in case this thing just goes to shit like okay can someone please grab just like 50,000 heads of iceberg lettuce so we can chuck it at this bitch <laughs> 
<laughs> and but then, but then, Ricky Coogan tells them to calm down and don't worry. He said, "I found some macaroons and there's plenty for all of us." <laughs> and he holds a bag of macaroons and then they all start cheering. They he completely turns their um their focus away from them being actually uh, damned uh, by his mistake. Which let's take a moment to recognize how beautiful of a plot device that was. In that it, you know, to spoiler alert, uh, it becomes their salvation. Their salvation. And it's an early, it's a very early uh, encounter with the very thing that is going to set them free from their misery. But they're not ready to see it yet. They, yeah. they can only see macaroons. They can only see the macaroons. And a lot of times that's true for our own life. We can only see macaroons. It's hard to see the macaroons for the tree, trees. Um, uh, professional Nigel Crump. Professor Nigel Crump, sorry. Um, great Who's probably a professional. Great performance. Great performance. Um, uh, machismo cheese for a man. <laughs> Is a little um, within within fiction commercial that uh, Brooke Shields cuts to, um, because she ta- she tells Ricky Coogan that he's been talking for um, over an hour about this story, which is true. I believe it was seventy minutes exactly that she mentioned. Yeah, yeah, I think she said seventy minutes. Um, so we we get a little clip of uh, machismo, a cheese for a man, and then. We get into the, the, the wrap-up of the whole thing, and I don't know how much we want to spoil the ending because it's very beautiful, and, and the lesson that we learn um, about um, gender uh, politics, gender politics, um, uh, c- kind of the importance of image in our culture and individuality, and uh, Ortiz actually catching that squirrel and then throwing it onto an old lady and then that squirrel bites the old lady's face for a joke. Um, again, just really transformative, transformative work here. Do you have any, any, any final thoughts on this movie before we, before we wrap up? I was very struck by the final image of these, these people finally rallied around their transformed selves to really highlight that when we are able to see through to the important things we become unified yeah absolutely absolutely oh well i mean that's thanks for going on this on this journey with us thanks everyone for listening to background centuries and please don't forget to brush your teeth Especially after this watch. Um, this has been Background Centuries. With your background boys. Noah. And Ethan. Always more to learn. Always less to say. Keep, Keep it, it skippy, skippy Freakland. <laughs>